You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening. Hi, everyone. And welcome to Empavilion tonight for the finissage of suspended activation, a piece of urban infrastructure in front of us that's part play, part physical fitness, but very much about both the making, the luxury of leisure as a public and collective activity, and also suggestive of a politics around the body, but we'll get to that later on. But before we proceed with this event, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land that we meet, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to the elders past and present. And this acknowledgement stands as a reminder that when we design in Australia, most of us are always designing on someone else's country, and maybe that's something that we can return to as well. My name is Timothy Moore, and I'm your host and facilitator for tonight, and I'm the director of an office called Sibling Architecture and co-curator of Melbourne Design Week since 2017. I also stand in front of you as Sibling has collaborated with Helen in Secretary before as well, um, who are the designers of the installation. So my role tonight is to introduce you to the speakers who designed and fabricated the work, um, and then lead maybe about a 20-minute conversation, so maybe 10 minutes each, followed by about a 20-minute chat. But that chat's also a, an invitation for all of you to participate in as well, um, or if not, stay around for drinks after to ask your question in private. Um, sunset's at about 8.37, so um, be nice if you can hang around and have a chat afterwards as well. So we're here tonight to celebrate Susie, which is the affectionately diminutive name we call suspended activation, Susie. It's an exercise in leisure and was commissioned by Empavilion as part of the January program, Vacation, Location, Staycation, curated by Jen Zielinska and with an explicit view to entertain children over the summer holiday period. Rather than giving you an interpretation of what is Susie and how does it relate to leisure, I'll leave that big reveal to Helen as well in one moment. So first speaker tonight is Helen Rutning, who is part of Secretary who designed the installation. Dr. Helen Rutning is a triple threat to architects, and I, I mean this clearly because she's an architectural theorist, she's an urban planner, and she's an urban designer. However, you, she uses a criticality of architecture productively as part of Stockholm-based architecture, architect, architecture practice secretary who just published a book, A Metabolist Guide to Stockholm, New Stockholm, which extends the practice's interest in the contemporary condition of how we live and what design can support these lifestyles as well. Um, the Melbourne launch of this book will happen during Melbourne Design Week. And our second, second speaker is Ellen Sayers, who fabricated and materialised the work. She's a metal fabricator and founder of Ellen Sayers Fabrication that is shearing, punching and assembling out of the Artery Cooperative in Northcote. She has fabricated for many artists and creative organisations, including recently Jilamara Art Centre for the Tutini Poles, and Helen, Ellen has a background in fine arts and sculpture and has exhibited in many places, including at King's, and also was a finalist in the prestigious Montalto Sculpture Prize. Um, so I'll now hand it over to Helen to introduce us to Suspended Activation or Susie. Thank you, Timothy. 
I would also um, like to extend my acknowledgement of the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which uh, we're standing today and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. Um, I'd also like to extend my warm thanks to M Pavilion uh, for this commission, this evening, this week. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for your faith in us. Um, but also to all the staff who I've had the pleasure to meet in the last few days and like scab coffees and hung out and chatted with. They've made my life really beautiful <laughs> hanging out here and talking to them. I also speak for, for three people today, um, secretaries and architecture practice that I direct alongside um, and in constant collaboration with uh, the architects Rutger Hogrim and Karin Mutz. Um, Rutger was the lead designer on this project and much of the credit for this piece should go to Rutger and Ellen for their late night and early morning uh, conversations. Um, uh, so we'll be hearing a little bit more about um, how it was made from Ellen in a second. So... Susie came out of a long-running conversation in the office about fitness, about rehabilitation and about leisure. From my colleague Karin's battle with mouse arm, are there any architects in the audience who have mouse arm? It's a really horrible uh, condition that comes from spending too much time cadding on your computer. Um, and the resulting physiotherapy equipment that hung around our office for at least four years. Um, that provided one point of departure in this kind of conversation. Another was our observation of the multiplication, almost kind of virus-like, if we can use that metaphor anymore, um, of gyms in new development areas across Stockholm, uh, which seemed to be sprouting across bottom, bottom floor uh, shop fronts like a rash. Um, and then also this kind of uh, perhaps a development where fitness was becoming something that wasn't purely personal to us anymore, that we'd started to actively obsess about, theorise, teach and design around. Um, asking questions like, what are the political potentials of bodily strength from a feminist perspective? How might architects imagine spaces beyond the archetypal interiors of home and work? And how can architecture contribute to the construction of collective bodies um, beyond commercial and individualising uh, notions of wellness? We've asked these questions of our students um, through the studio that Rutger teaches at KTH in Stockholm and the theory course that I teach at the Estonian Academy of Art in Tallinn. And we've asked these questions of ourselves. Um, and this installation comes from the midst of these questions. Uh, whilst it doesn't answer them, I think I'll be straight up about that. It's a byproduct of them, I would say. Um, designing it, or Susie, was what we were doing while we were uh, thinking through these issues. This is the first time I've publicly spoken about the fitness theme um, outside of the context of the studio and um, my teaching, and it feels a little bit strange, I have to say. Um, perhaps because theorising fitness doesn't seem like something that um, needs to be done at all. Uh, perhaps fitness isn't something that needs to be overthought. Um, it's not an intellectual pursuit in the first place, and it's something that happens outside of work, so it seems a little abusive to pull it back into the um, realm of work by thinking and writing and talking about it. It's like you risk ruining it for yourself and everybody else. <laughs> um, but it's also like a ubiquitous um, activity. It's hard to put your finger on what it is. The quest to arrive at the ever-elusive state of wellness or peak performance um, is all around us in higher density urban environments. 
uh, before and after work, the subjects of urban fitness um, can be seen taking to the streets and interior gym spaces in order to perform their complex choreographies intended to build functioning bodies and calm, productive or overproductive minds. Um, and these people, us maybe, um, are not only observed uh, by each other and observe each other, but also by count uh, countless algorithms too. So employing performance tracking apps, I'm sure we're all familiar with, we have many of them on our phones. Um, uh, lycra joggers, yoga practitioners, CrossFit junkies all act as armatures for compulsive data harvesting um, and as bearers of a new host of norms relating to what a body might be expected to do. So when viewed as a material culture expressed through fashion, equipment, music, choreography, um, metabolic exchanges, diets, code, and perhaps a very high, highly specific uh, architecture, fitness opens up a series of broader questions about power, economics, and life that I think are really, really fascinating. And that's maybe the reason why I want to talk about fitness, but there's one more reason why it's hard. Um, it's hard to talk about fitness because it's cosmetic. Um, for this reason, it's usually confined to personal matters, uh, perhaps even um, the feminine um, or effeminate. The complex training uh, programs of fitness, um, particularly when performed by those who we call women, constitute a form of corporeal modification, a set of actions that modify the body. They pull, push, shape us uh, using subtractive processes to reduce the appearance of mass um, or additive processes that emphasise it. The cosmetic is really easily dismissed in our society, along with the bodies and minds that it is applied to. It's seen as superficial, meaningless or useless. Um, but the cosmetic, if it's to be uh, dismissed as frivolous or recreational, should also be seen as part of the recuperative, the restorative, the rehabilitational. Um, so a holiday on a beach in the Maldives, and I know Karine's here, <laughs> we've had a chat about that previously, um, for a middle-class office worker is both a frivolous display of wealth and thus luxury, but it also might be reasonably understood by that person as a purchase period of psychic or bodily restoration that would be necessary to continue, uh, that they can continue working without falling apart. Um, so as urban theorist Marish Krivi explains, fitness is a term borrowed from evolutionary biology. It has its roots in Darwin's concept of um, the relation between organism and environment. It's about being well matched to your environment. You adjust and not your surroundings. Under capitalism, this means making sure that you can continue working long hours and resist the wear and tear of work, that you don't break down, that you always have the energy to keep going. So for all of these reasons, it's really hard to talk about fitness. I seem to be managing the right. Um, beyond the personal, beyond the cosmetic, beyond the feminine, beyond the rehabilitational, we might actually ask ourselves, though, what other for forms of fitness could be possible, um, whether we can be fit for other purposes. As the Swedish artist uh, Fatia Mordin reminds us, um, the emancipatory qualities of a strong body have quite a, a utility for feminism too. Many of the modifications performed in the service of beauty deform our bodies towards momentary dysfunctionality, but what comes next? Um, after the pause, after the transformation. We have far from fully explored what filled lips, Botoxed foreheads or um, uh, CrossFit butts can do, um, and we don't know what acts they might support beyond their desired effects. So this is something we might consider as we think about um, these things. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, here I got a little bit um, bombastic in the language, but I'll just keep reading anyway. So the lifting capacity of a Kardashian ass tends to be confined to weights that are tied down to machines and members-only gym environments. But I would like suggest, and I'm coming to my conclusion here, that we're yet to see an influencer throw a kettlebell through a plate glass window. Um, and if they did, they'd presumably throw the damn thing much farther than a horde of scrawny activist boys in black hoodies. So finally, in an introduction then to the installation, these questions are not ones that only pertain to adults. Alongside their adult counterparts, children live highly structured lives. Their days are heavily scheduled, perhaps to the same degree as us these days. And I guess in this installation, we wanted to try to design something that wasn't a gym equipment, that wasn't a playground equipment, that wasn't a chair, but that had elements of all these things, which didn't anticipate what a child or ad uh, adult might do with it in advance, which invited some kind of degree of loitering, testing and non-productivity. We wanted to make something that was familiar yet did not um, suggest a particular use. So I hope I've taken you through some of the main ideas um, behind the installation and I'm looking forward to talking about how it ended up looking like this. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Helen. Um, Thank I, most first of all, I want to say thank Helen and Rutger because they've trusted me with their design for this work. Um, thanking M Pavilion for having us here and for dealing with us on site the other day. They were very patient and understanding as we did some last minute problem solving. And I want to thank all the last people um, because of being on hands here, they, I needed an extra pair of helping hands here and there. So my friends Sam Minane and Samuel Soames, Nikki Kutus and my partner Steve Cohen who was in the, the studio late at night and helping me problem solve different techniques of how we could weave the project together that would allow for it to be have strength and also have a nice pattern that was aesthetic to look at, but also keeping the design um, and brackets to a minimal so that it could just seem more seamless and streamlined. Um, a bit about me is that I come from a fine art background. I studied at BCA and I've always had an interest um, from metalwork right since I was in, grew up in small town, uh, country town in Warrigal. I decided in year 12 I wanted to learn how to use metal and I went out to the local fabricator, uh, like artist out there and I got him to show me how to use metalwork and he would just let me go there whenever I wanted and I'd just rock up with my little hatchback car and I'd just like go in the shed and I'm just wearing a wool jumper and a, a helmet and this 70-year-old man is just showing me how to weld and then I was just off on my own for most of the time building a sculpture there and then from there I went to art school at BCA and furthered my practice in um, making there. And then after art school, I went and did a trade fabrication at Heidelberg. Um, uh, after working at Christopher Boots, the lighting place, they um, assisted me with my trade apprenticeship there. And um, through that, I got to be able to further um, develop my metal fabrication and engineering skills. So I really like to pair the um, complex nature of metal fabrication as well as art. So being a part of this project was really merging a lot of my favourite things, such as art and fabrication and design. Um, and then I've worked through, I've worked through Artery, which is a artist-run space in Northcote. 
Uh, it is a cooperative space and um, has been there for almost 20 years. And in that space, I've met my mentor, Jeff Neal, who is also a huge person in my life. Um, I wouldn't have been able to go out on my own as a fabricator without him. And he's pretty much like a wizard to me and an oracle of like, he's spent the last 40, 50 years building public art sculptures. And you'll find him in the evenings, like on building massive um, rhino just like 3D files on his computer, just like taking away. And I'm like, I can come to him with any problem and be like, so I want to hang this 70 kilo, 70 kilo object from like one pole. What do I do? And he'll be like, come to me and we have a big problem solving session. We'll be able to resolve something together. Um, so with this, a lot of um, the skills came from this were also assisted by him. Um, and he was definitely a huge part of this project to make it really streamlined for me to, and allowing and assisting me to be independent in this. So he's a huge part of my life. Um, and to talk further about how it came about, like how um, the process of making this work, um, I use a lot, I use 3D modelling programs like Rhino and um, what it allows me is to kind of take that digital form and turn it from something digital and 3D in the computer to something physical and real life. And one thing that was really great about what I loved about this process with this piece in particular is that I could draw the whole sculpture up on Rhino and it had a um, tool that like unroll um, surface so I could unroll the tubing um, into a flat surface that I could print out and then cut out and then rewrap around the tubing so that I could mark the cut lines. So just taking those things from flat planes to sculptural forms. Um, if the, this process really reminded me of like sewing almost because you have to kind of like, ha I had these really intricate cut lines that I was doing with the angle grinder. And I just like, I'd check with Jeff and I'm like, are you sure this is all gonna connect together? And he's like, you just gotta, you gotta trust it. And I'm like, okay. So I'd be showing him like, you know, as I'm going and I'm cutting these work. And at, like at first I just had a pile of poles and a circle. And I was like, okay, so this is gonna be a thing. Um, and much like a puzzle piece, we kind of just worked our way from the bottom and worked our way to the top in connecting each part, fitting each part as we went so that the circle sat in with the uprights and like it was just, and all of a sudden it just formed in front of my eyes and even myself, I was like, oh, it's a thing, it's happened. <laughs> and like, so it was really wonderful, um, yeah, taking, yeah, breaking it down to these finer pieces and then pulling it back together. And then um, the additional part of the weaving on top was the next kind of um, challenge and excitement. And my Steve said to me when we were like, it was like nine, nine o'clock in the studio and he's like, you gotta be like some sort of Einstein shit to kind of work this out. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> There's like lots of over and under turns. And um, yeah, I think having a background in also making clothing and having that understanding of weaving and also really helped to kind of um, into, like visualize those kind of complex movements and understanding that that will then create a pattern overall that will be aesthetically pleasing and also an inviting space to be in. So um, yeah, that's kind of like how it came about. It's really interesting to hear both your perspectives because we we heard about the idea behind the idea that led to the project and how the project came together, but. I didn't really understand why it doesn't look like it does from both of what you said. So may maybe my first few questions <laughs> will be related to, um, you know, when people walk into architecture, design and art as well, they don't see theory. 
So, um, and at a very simple level, you want people to experience joy quite often. So I'm kind of interested in what, besides the theory, because the theory comes later when you kind of understand and play and work within it. So what did you want people to experience um, just from a simple everyday level? And also, yeah, what did you want them to feel? And how does the way that the form comes together helps make them feel that way? Great question. Um, here I'll channel a little bit of Rutger. Um, <laughs> I think uh, for us it was, uh, this was an interesting scale to work at. We usually design buildings. Um, so for us, like a one-to-one -one, um, installation piece was quite a new territory scale-wise. And um, the references we were looking at were kind of oversized sun lounges, double beds, um, small Ooh, what's the word in English? Like this, the tiny sailboats that you can be one person, like a, like a dinghy. dinghy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we were looking at these kind of leisure objects that like spark joy um, and the forms that they have. We we're also interested in um, Pilates, re um, reformers and uh, CrossFit um, equipment. And we wanted to produce something that echoed that language, but that maybe didn't suggest fitness per se. Um, um, the form's really simple. Uh, it's it's three interlocking um, geometries. We have a triangle, a circle, and a square. Um, and the reason why they're there is actually not the kind of primary geometry idea. They could have been other things, I guess, but um, the fact that they produce a different weave. So um, when you wrap these different uh, uh, shapes, you end up with a different weave, which has a different resistance quality. So um, you get kind of different surfaces that you can lean against or sit on or fall into if anyone's tried to sit in in the middle of the circle. <laughs> yeah, maybe if anyone wants to try it out, I mean, you can probably do push-ups against it or lean back <laughs> against it. If anyone wants to experiment, I may get into it if no one else does in a second. Um, but maybe then, how do you know you get the result that you want? Like when you work in iterative design processes, and the question comes to both of you, how do you know this is the best enough outcome? It doesn't have to be the best, but is it, it's partly based on the weaving and tectonics, but also about anthropometrical ideas of how people can move and relax and uh, gym in different ways. I'll just kind of move over because no one else is going <laughs> to sit here. Yes. We, um, we made a th uh, like a very, very simple frame mock-up in the office. It was snowing outside. We had big jackets on um, and we basically felt, thank you so much for the performative yeah. uh, demonstration there. Yes. <laughs> um, but actually as a practice, we're three people who never agree. We have three very, very different ideas about the world and we argue our way through every project until we want to kill each other. So quite practically in terms of how we, um, we designed it, it was about Rutger sitting... Um, um, in 3D Studio or in AutoCADs, um, producing model after model after model and Karen saying, that's shit, I hate it. And me saying, it doesn't hold the concept. And Rutger saying, I like this colour until we had argued to the point where we could all be happy. It's a very Swedish consensus-based process. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we did test it also with our own bodies um, in a smaller form. And then I guess I would kind of um, then come in with meetings with Rutger and Helen and we kind of just talk about things structurally, about weight distribution and ensuring that the fact that we are going to have kids and people playing on it, we just... Um, so there were some things that had to be added just to ensure that there's not going to be a counterbalancing and um, that we can just make sure that this can happen in, in line with the design as well, which was always important. And, and with temporary projects like this, often the material 
the, the material lead, leads the project because there's no budget for labour in the end, often with the temporary projects. So how much, Alan and Helen, did the material lead the kind of design of this project as well or how it materialises in this space? I think that the um, there's two elements at play, like the surface and the structure actually do quite different things. Um, I wouldn't say that... I, I could see this, like, re-wrapped in a different material. Um, the physio bands were, like, one test. Um, and I think that they were really difficult to work with, to be honest. Like, it's, like, a great idea. You're like, yeah, we'll just use this. And then you kind of test it and realise it's extremely difficult to fasten, for instance. You see the, the, um, the, the brackets along the bottom that are sort of exposed. Um, they're really difficult material to work with that tore very easily, that is quite strong and resistant in some ways and then very, very fragile in others. Um, but for us, it was really important as a conceptual kind of um, uh, move that we would use this. Um, in terms of the geometries, though, I think that they are freestanding and operate in a, in a different logic. Um, so those two, like, sit alongside each other. They're friends. They get along. Um, we've made them love each other but there could be other elements yeah I think there were dip, like there were some additional supports added maybe the square frame at the front just to kind of um, keep the balance in it as well as counterbalancing to and um, yeah I can't think of anything else okay. I mean you know these projects are sites of experimentation in a way um, you know they're iterative as well and I wonder Helen like a lot of this is testing out ideas and we just talked a bit about understanding it materially and tectonically, but in terms of spatially and programmatically, were you here on site, and maybe this question opens up to then pavilion staff or other people that were here, were you observing what people were doing, their behaviours, taking notes, taking photographs, thinking about um, the kind of situations that you've created, because you created a situation for people to have encounters in a way? Yeah, we've previously as, a, as an office been really interested in like quite... Um, vulnerable or, or sensitive spaces and the documentation of them as interiors. So we've worked in like health care environments and public uh, buildings and it's always a question of uh, photography is difficult I think without getting people's permission. I, I find it really invasive to be photographed uh, if I'm at a doctor's surgery or if I'm I mean I think especially children are really difficult subjects so not so much um, photography but I have been hanging out here every morning for nine mornings in a row and that's been great I've had so many good chats to people about um, the pain of physiotherapy whilst their children have, like, thrown themselves um, at this thing. Um, I didn't realise uh, Australian... And you said that Australian children are more dangerous or more active? Australian children are terrifying. They're, like, they're really quite violent, I think. There's some... The next generation, we've got to watch out. But there was one point where there was, like, 15 of them kind of hanging off and I, they were really pulling on it, trying to destroy it. That was their aim and... Did you engineer... Did you get an engineer to look at it in um, terms of... So how many children you could fit on it? We calculated that ourselves, actually. Um, so we did load testing and then we did the math. Um, we probably should have got an engineer, but we were quite confident that this was a fairly simple structure and that we had that covered, actually. That was a long conversation. We both kind of collaborated on that front. It was really beautiful when we first landed the when we landed the structure on the ground and we had to um, move it into the shade. There was lots of little tiny people around this kind of area and we plonked it right in the middle. And without even saying anything, these tiny humans just start pushing towards it. And they just start clambering on and you're like, no, 
tiny human. And like little boys, like a little boy came up to me one day and was just like, I was wrapping it and he was just like, what do you got there? And I'm like, oh, I'm just fixing this sculpture. And he's like, I really would like to play on it. And I, un- and I was like, I understand, but it's just not quite ready yet. And he's like, okay, well, we're going to go across the road and then I'm going to come back and then I'm going to play with it. And I was like, that's a great plan. I'll see you soon. <laughs> Has anyone else here played on it mm-hmm. yet? Do you want to share your experience? I kind of fell through the middle. But it might have been the beers before. So. That, that's that's an intent. Mm. That's intended. It's, it's an adventure. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. If you're a small person, you can kind of climb through the top. You can kind of be supported on different areas. Exactly. <laughs> Does any of the Empavine staff that have been here daily want to comment on what they've seen? No? <laughs> no. I tried to work on it earlier, which is a stupid idea, and it's absolutely impossible because I <laughs> fell backwards with my laptop. So you've really conceived of something that means you can only play. Yeah, exactly. There's the humour that we attested for happened, you know? Yeah. Is it anti-capitalist then if you like? Oh, absolutely, Dexter. Absolutely. This is a, this is a revolution exactly. in material form. We're actually protesting with it after this. The hammock. That was in Helen's notes to me, though. It is about the resistance to work through, through leisure and recreation. Yeah. Any other questions from the audience? an aesthetic question and it's um, and I know that you were talking extensively around the uh, feminist um, sort of intersection of uh, like how our bodies are being shaped by the fitness industry and wellness culture and everything else and I was wondering if you had specifically made the choice to make the pink frame and the sort of ovum shaped you know um, chasm in the center and I wanted to know if there was any aspect of you know femininity that you wanted to channel in there in the physical design (laughs) for sure Uh, we had such a long conversation about the pink for instance Um, so we we've talked a lot about this looking at gym interiors that there's a point where like feminine like tips over into hyper masculine and it's a really tough one with pink particularly because if you go like one step too far you fall into hot pink which starts to look like automotive industry paint and um, gets this other like super dudesy feel so getting a um a soft pink that wasn't millennial pink but there was lipstick pink or maybe some sort of nail polish pink um was great in the studio when we were talking about it then we ring ellen and we're like so um we need this pink (laughs) (laughs) and it was even funny like having to contact like because i'm like i because i sprayed in the studio as well and i um and contacting different suppliers to get automotive paint paint in different kinds of pink. Apparently pink is like a hard colour in the automotive range um, because it has such different tones and it can be quite particular. But I'm definitely dealing with a lot of people who are already not really experienced with dealing with women in metal fabrication, let alone one calling up being like, um, I really want this specific pink. Like, I want this specific... No, it can't be hot pink. No, it has to be a specific pink. And... Um, I really, I really recommend um, Pain Away in Preston as he um, colour matched and we sat together and kind of, he was like, this, I'm feeling like this. And I'm like, I love your work. <laughs> so it was a really great result in the end. I, but, yeah. I think also to pick up on your point about resistance or certain body cultures, I kind of like the idea that you don't see whole bodies as well. So there's kind of opportunities to see parts of people rather than seeing one person as a whole as well. Mm. Are there other questions from the audience? 
I've, I'll ask maybe one more question and go back to the audience and see if there's one more to close on as well. Often with temporary projects, um, for a small period of time, a lot of money spent on it, but what happens to the afterlife? Because, for example, with M Pavilion, it does go off to other sites around Melbourne. Do you have plans? Are we melting down the prefabricated steel to reuse elsewhere? Does it get donated to a primary school? Um, do you, does it go in someone's backyard? What, what are the plans for this project? Pretty excited about an ongoing dialogue with M Pavilion about um, the future of this work. It's we have um, as a small practice that don't tend to land really um, big fancy commissions. We've been very um, we've got good at recycling our material and reshowing work and like finding gaps and spaces where we can get material or like uh, previous installations in. Um, our storage room at our office is just stacked full of. Super cases that can be sent to like anywhere um, that hold the like artworks in them and so I feel that this will probably be um, just the first chapter in this project. Um, I think it would be really interesting and Ellen and I have talked about this of um, looking at like reweaving it. Um, we've said all the time that she's got good bones so I don't think we'd be melting down the, um, the armature at all. I think that that could support um, quite a range of different cladding and surfaces. Um, it would be also I would like to say that Susie is hopefully the first of many. Um, we're going to give them all like really nice names um, and we'd hope to see this kind of uh, iterative series uh, eventually leading up to maybe an entire gym would be nice. And that's exactly it. Like even the form, like we were even talking about, if worst case scenario, we'll just take all the weaving off and they're like the form itself is still structurally beautiful and still playful in that um, playground elements as well. But exactly, it's got, it can take many forms with the material. And, you know, I think that's the great thing about temporary installations or projects like this. Um, they're not here to solve problems, they're propositional. And I think it's always interesting uh, with architecture practices, specifically where the ideas that, you kind, that kind of play out in these small projects can re-emerge in large-scale projects in different ways. So I'm really excited to see how this uh, plays out for Secretary as they do larger-scale projects, hopefully in Melbourne one day as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there any more questions from the audience? Any last dying questions? Yep. Um, I've just got a question about the scale. Um, oh, I don't can't hear you yet. I've just got a question about the scale. Um, was the scale of the work informed by the pavilion itself and would you consider making it bigger or smaller in the future? <laughs> yeah, we actually, um, we did receive like a lot of information from Jen at the start that was very helpful for us. We had a moment where we thought the triangle was too tall to get in and we freaked out. Um, <laughs> so it was like absolutely designed to be in this space. Um, that really did guide the scale. I think we could have had this, we call it the sail. Like sail could have been much taller, um, but we actually at the end thought, no, we should be also respectful because this is in dialogue with like another architecture and it needs to sit well on its site. Um, so I think um, we were thinking a lot about the design of the pavilion um, and being, um, yeah, engaging in a dialogue with that. I think this is a beautiful um, architectural work, so it's incredible to get to cite your work within something like this. Um, but I also, I wonder what it would look like somewhere else. I wonder what she would do in a more open landscape, for instance, or how it might look in a different, um, more densely packed environment what it might do in an interior. Uh, we don't know yet, but it would be nice to test those things. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting idea around scale as well. You know, this could be 
20 metres. You know, it can be so many different scales that this is quite exciting about it as well. Well, thank you so much, Alan and Helen. Thank you. Uh, tonight, <laughs> and for such a beautiful project as well. And thank you all for coming tonight as well. Um, please stick around, and if you've got any more questions, especially around the theory of the project, uh, please stick around for a few more drinks as well. If you can all just put your hands together, please, for Secretary and Alan Zays as well. Thank you. That's it. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.